Open to Ruth chapter 1. And um, uh, picture this. Uh, I'm in line at TSA at the airport uh, sometime in the beginning of the year. And uh, there's like 100 people in front of me. And so I'm like, man, this is going to be a long wait. So I whip out my phone, and um, I open up to Ruth chapter 1. I'm going through the one-year Bible. So I read Ruth chapter 1. And Ruth's not really the kind of story that you just read Ruth chapter 1. You know, it's not like Thessalonians or something. I'm like, okay, I'm obviously reading 2 and 3 and 4. And I made my way through, like, the whole book of Ruth. So by the time I make my way through, I've also made my way to the front of the line. And when I'm at the front of the line, I'm staring at the TSA agent, the guy who takes your boarding pass and your ID and, like, makes sure you're good to go. And he and I are looking at each other, and it's super awkward because I'm, like, crying my eyes out. And he's like, either this guy is like gonna bomb this plane or he just broke up with somebody. Um, and I'm like, I wanted like, to explain myself in some way. So I'm like, I'm actually just reading the book of Ruth, which is weird because it's like, that doesn't, that's not an excuse <laughs> to be crying in the TSA line. So then I'm like, all right, it's just weird. So we kind of like look down and don't, and I just like walk past. And I'm like, why, you, you know, I'm just thinking, why am I so emotional as I read this book? What is it? What's like triggering me in my subconscious? And, um, and I think that I realized that it's this. I think that when you read the story of Ruth, what you're confronted with is there's like a radical, uh, sacrificial, committed love. And if I was honest with myself, I think there was something in my subconscious that yearned to have that and to be that. But I recognized that there was a distance between what I was reading and the person that I am. Have you ever come to that place when you read scripture? Um, and... I, I tried to think about why, and I was like, what is it that really, like, wh why, do I, why do I look at this and look at the loyalty and commitment and sacrifice in this, and why do I feel like I'm not that? And started to look for explanations. And so, you know, as I was mulling it over, I was like, one thing that I'm absolutely certain of is that I am very much a product of my culture and of my generation. Um, and you are too. Uh, I don't want to do, like, a millennial bashing thing. That's, like, such a popular sport these days. Um, so I really don't want to like get down on millennials, um, but millennial is my generation, and so there are certain attributes that we have, and to be honest, I don't think that we have very strong commitments or very strong loyalty as much as previous generations. Now, before we do get into bashing, I just want to say, boomers, Gen Xers, I can go at you guys too. I've got all of your bad traits figured out, and I've got statistics to prove it, so we can go there if you want, but I will do a little millennial bashing right now because I do see a weakness and a deficiency in this area. So let me, let me read you some stats. Um, this is specifically related to the idea of loyalty and commitment in our culture. Millennials are three times more likely than non-millennials to change jobs in the last year, and 91% don't expect to stay with their current organization for longer than three years. You remember, like, you know, in history, people used to stay at a job their entire lifetime. Millennials jump every three years at least. Listen to this. How do they save for the future? Airbnb just put out a report that 18 to 35-year-olds to were more likely to save for a vacation than they were to save for a down payment on a house. How about the fact that we move a lot? The United States Census Bureau found that between 2007 and 2012, millennials accounted for 24% of the population, but 50% of the moves made in America. So we're a quarter of the population, but we move twice as much as everybody else. Then I started to think, these are just statistics. What about like the, you know, the psychology of the way we think? And I was like, what do we think about romance? 
I remember, uh, you know, I tried to say, what was, the, what was the most romantic movie of my childhood? And for anybody who's my age, it would have to be The Notebook, right? Yeah, yeah. And here's the thing, I liked, I loved The Notebook. Like, when I was younger, I was like, I had dreams of literally being Ryan Gosling on the Ferris wheel, asking the girl on the date. I wanted to kiss a girl in the rain, and I wanted her to say, Sam Bird, and all that type of stuff. Like, I, I like, I'm romantic. I dreamed about that. But, um... But when I think about the movie as I get older, I'm like, geez, that movie was about a, a woman who was engaged to a man. Her ex-boyfriend returns home. She goes, spends the weekend with him, sleeps with him. They make love and fight like crazy or whatever. Then she goes back and feels sorry for it and asks her fiancé to take her back. He does. And then she still leaves him and goes back with her feeling-based emotion, you know, for that guy. And so, like... Yeah, it's weird. Like, when you're younger, you cheer on, like, the Rachel McAdams, Ryan Gosling love story, but you're like, man, there's a lot of pain and brokenness in this and a lot of shirking commitment to go towards that. Super weird. Then I was thinking, you like how much I think? Then I was thinking that our technology doesn't help this either, right? We have, like, uh, what do they call it, FOBO now, fear of a better offer. The fact that we, like, always have, uh, where technology is always accessible, we can always say, you know, people are like, hey, can you come to my house tonight? We're having a birthday party. It's like, maybe I'll be there tentatively in case I get a text message or see something on Instagram and head to a different place because it's cooler, right? And technology's also made it super easy for us to uh, not own anything. And there's some commitment to just owning things. Like, you think about it and it's like, we have, um, like, simple basic stuff, like, Everybody always owned cars, and, like, you had, like, um, you know, even the clothes on your body. It's like Uber allows you to not own a car, and you can just go with the flow and use a car whenever you want, like, no strings attached. Rent the runway? You can actually just rent clothes. You don't even need to, like, have clothes that are your own. If you get tired of them, just return them, and you can get new clothes. You don't have to own anything. I actually saw this article in the New York Times this was actually shocking to me, who lives in this culture. There's a, <laughs> there's a, um, this, this article said they see it, they like it, they want it, they rent it. And it was about the renting culture of millennials and the fact that they rent everything, including now furniture. And so renting furniture has probably been like a thing that's been around for years, but it's becoming really popular now. Here's an excerpt from it. Furnish, for example, offers furniture rentals on brands like Crate and Barrel and Campaign. Quote, they don't necessarily want to commit. I'm going to pause there. They're talking about sofas and coffee tables, right? Not people. <laughs> Quote, they don't necessarily want to commit, but they have disposable income, and they want nice brands, and they want nice furniture, and they appreciate good, de good design. This is what Neil Montgomery, the Creighton, Creighton Barrel's chief executive, said. Lily Morton, 36, who recently moved to Seattle from New York and managed to fit all of her belongings into a rental car that she drove across the country, now rents furnished furniture. Quote, I want nice things, but I'm also not going to drop thousands of dollars all at once on a bunch of things when I don't know in a year if I'm going to even be in the same place. Then I thought about how this made its way into our personality. I'm really proving this point out to you guys. <laughs> then I thought about how this made its way into like our personality. How many people have taken the Enneagram personality test? Yeah, all right. So like the Enneagram is like this super cultural Christian thing that happened where like everybody's trying to figure out what their Enneagram is. And it's just like Myers-Briggs or anything else. But um, within it, you get... Um, you basically take a, you take a questionnaire, and then it, it assigns you, like, different names um, and numbers. And so, like, 
If you're a one, you're the reformer. If you're a seven, you're the enthusiast. The eight's the challenger. And so you get these names. And this is like your personality. So there's attributes of who you are. And we talk about ourselves with this language. So like when I get together with my friends, a lot of times we'll be like, oh, did you take the Enneagram test? What are you? What are you? And so we end up talking about these things and getting into the depths of our personality. So the names have significance. And they usually are like pretty like something you can identify strongly with. Like if you're a one and you're a reformer, that's a pretty nice thing to be, right? You're like, well, I actually tested as the reformer which is great, because there's quite a few things in the world that I do think need to be reformed, and I'm the person for that job. <laughs> um, how about the achiever? That's what I am. And so people ask me, and I'm like, yeah, I took it. Um, I think there's just something about my personality where I tend to really achieve a lot, no matter what the circumstances are. You know, I'm just an achiever. That's the nature of who I am. <laughs> or like the enthusiast, right? You're a seven, and like every seven is very happy to find out that they are the enthusiast, because it's like what they always respected anyway. They're like, yeah, I just bring optimism and energy to every situation that I go into. I'm an enthusiast. But there's literally one Enneagram type that nobody wants to be, <laughs> and that's the six. It's called the loyalist. And here's the thing, when you're in these conversations about what Enneagram are you, everybody who's the loyalist, who tests as a six, is always kind of quiet. They like exist off in the corner. And then somebody actually has to ask them, hey, what did your, what's, your, what's your Enneagram? What did you test as? And they're like, oh, it's a six. <laughs> like that's basically their vibe, you know? And, um, and as my friend Tom would say, if you take the Enneagram and you test as a six, you lost the Enneagram. Because, <laughs> because our culture doesn't have a lot of respect for something like the loyalist. It's like, well, what are you, just loyal? Do you just follow? Like, you probably just go to the achiever and then just do whatever he wants you to do, right? You're just a loyal person. Like, there's not a lot of significance. Nobody holds loyalty to a very high regard in our culture. And so this is like the culture that I feel like it's the cultural moment that we're in. It's rent it, return it, throw it away, start over. Um, you, can, you can just, uh, you know, our world doesn't really have an have an honor in the way that it used to for loyalty and commitment. And, um, and so that's what I'm talking about when I say that the distance between what I see in my world and some of the cultural upbringing that I was brought into, and then I contrast that with the Book of Ruth. It's interesting, um, G.K. Chesterton wrote about this a long time ago, in 1880. Uh, he was at the forefront of like the changing mind of the modern man. So we're moving from tradition to a more modern type of uh, concept of humanity. And so that's when um, people started to believe more strongly in evolution um, than uh, you know, creationism or, or more of like a you know, theological approach to creation. Um, people started to believe in moral relativism, you know, that what was right for me uh, wasn't necessarily right for you and vice versa. And so there was a lot of things that were changing in the mind of man. And he said that as this continues, there's going to be a, a decline in vows that we take. He talked about how in medieval times, people used to take totally reckless vows, and it was actually kind of normal. He said there was one vow where a knight vowed that he would chain two mountains together for no particular reason. We don't even know why. Another knight vowed that he would go find his way to Jerusalem blindfolded, and he died along the way. And the thing is, in medieval times, no one even thought this was weird. It was actually like a pretty normal thing to take a rash vow and live that as your life's calling. But he was like, these days, vows are going to become insignificant. Here's what he said. The man who makes a vow makes an appointment with himself at some distant time or place. Isn't that such a good line for what a vow is? The danger of it is that he might not keep the appointment. 
And in modern times, this terror of oneself, of the weakness of oneself, has perilously increased and is the real basis of objection to vows of any kind. The revolt against vows has been carried out in our day even to the extent of a revolt against the typical vow of marriage. It is most amusing to listen to the opponents of marriage on this subject. They appear to imagine that the idea of constancy was a yoke mysteriously imposed on mankind by the devil instead of being, as it is, a yoke consistently imposed by all lovers on themselves. They've invented a phrase, a phrase that is a black and white contradiction in two words, free love, as if a lover ever had been or ever could be free. It is the nature of love to bind itself, and the institution of marriage merely paid the average man the compliment of taking him at his word. Um, that line in there, it is the nature of love to bind itself. I feel like that's kind of the lost art of this generation and this time that we live in. We don't bind ourselves to much anymore. And so, we open up to Ruth chapter 1. And what we're going to see in Ruth chapter 1 is that there's a rash vow that occurs um, in the first chapter. If you don't know the context of Ruth, um, it's a pretty familiar story. Uh, it's Naomi is one of the main characters. She and her husband Elimelech are born in Israel. There's a famine in the land, and they move to the land of Moab. When they get to Moab, they, uh, their two sons find Moabite wives. Um, one of those wives is named Ruth. Ruth's a Moabite. Um, over the next 10 years that they live there, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and her two sons both die. And so what's left is three widows. Naomi decides that she's going to go home, back to Israel, to try and make life work there. In the ancient world, um, be, being a widow in a foreign country was basically a death sentence. There was no welfare system and all that type of stuff. So Naomi decides that um, she's going to go home. Now, on the road, these, two, these three women are all walking together, and the two, uh, two uh, daughters-in-law um, are going to go with her. And she turns to them and she goes, no, go back. I want you to go back to Moab. You have a chance to find new husbands and start your life over again. I'm too old and it's not going to happen for me, so there's no reason to stick with me. She actually says something interesting. She says, the hand of God is actually against me. Basically the equivalent of, I'm actually a cursed person. Look at all of the bad things that happened in my life. You do not want to stick around and see where this ends. You need to go. And so one of them does, Orpah. She returns. She goes back to Moab. But the other one, Ruth, says this, one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, which, by the way, is probably the most quoted biblical passage because it's what's read at weddings. And I don't know if people realize at weddings that this isn't the promise of a bride to a groom or a groom to a bride. This is a promise of a daughter to her mother-in-law. <laughs> which of all things would be the weirdest person to give a promise to. I mean, could you imagine, like, you're literally there, and, like, the, the you know, the soon-to-be daughter-in-law is making her vows to the groom, and then she goes, real quick, step aside, I also want to talk to you, lady. <laughs> and she says this. Well, Naomi said, um, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And here's the vow part. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so right in the very first chapter of the book Ruth, we have 
a vow, and what G.K. Chesterton would call a rash vow, radical, sacrificial love that doesn't make a lot of sense. And for me, I look at it and I'm just like, I'm just so curious as to why. Does anyone have an explanation for why Ruth would say something like that? So I kind of like thought through a couple things that, you know, right off the top of my head, I was like, okay, why would, why would, a, person, why would a person do what Ruth did? Um, and I looked at these two women and I saw very, very different attitudes. So like, you have, um, you have Ruth on one side, you have Naomi on the other side. Both of them are widows, right? Um, most of the same things have happened to them, but two totally different outlooks. Naomi really is absolutely hopeless as she's on this journey home. And Ruth, I mean, Ruth says something that basically, the reason that, it's, the reason that we quote it in marriages is because it has so much momentum to it. It's almost like a game-changing direction, right? It's like, it's in the institution of marriage because we believe that like something amazing is about to start and you're gonna go on an adventure. Ruth is literally speaking adventure language over this situation that seems dire and desperate and like absolutely no hope. Why is it that Naomi and Ruth have such different outlooks on the same situation? So I thought maybe it's their circumstances. Maybe Naomi's lost more. Maybe it's felt, um, maybe she just feels it more strongly. And I remember um, when I was in my mid-20s, I watched a woman become a widow, and it was one of the most gut-wrenching things I've ever seen in my life. I remember being in the waiting room, and um, there's two feelings that I felt very strongly. Um, they were both physical. One thing was, um, as I watched her, I just felt like it was like, you couldn't hold on to something tight enough. Uh, it's the only way I can explain it. It's like, I think because you have no control over the situation, and something is actually slipping away, and there's nothing you can do to stop it, it's almost like you want to white-knuckle grip something, but no matter how hard you squeeze, it's still going to slip through your fingers. And I also remember that the room, the air in the room, just felt super thin. It was like, no matter how many breaths you take, you were never going to fill up enough air in your lungs to actually meet the demand that you had. And it's just, I don't know how else to put it, like, it just seemed like the air was thin. And that's pain, you know? Like, and I'm just watching it. It wasn't even, like, happening to me. I'm watching... I'm watching that happen, and, um, and I imagine like, that what it would be like to lose a child, that's multiplied by I don't know, varying degrees. And so, um, so, what, so Naomi's pain was great. So maybe her circumstances were just so desperate that she couldn't handle it. But then I look at Ruth's circumstances, and hers aren't so great either. So Ruth is a widow as well, and she loses a husband. And they tell us that there was a 10-year period that these people were married. And, you know, like back in the ancient days, they got on the ball quick. It wasn't like they, like, went and found themselves for 10 years. Like, they had kids immediately. So if Ruth wasn't producing a child, something was up, you know? And I think for the most part, she probably thought that she was barren um, and wasn't going to be able to have a child. So she's kind of in the same situation as Naomi. It's a very hopeless future they're both looking at. So I don't think that their circumstances separate them. So then I was like, maybe it's their personality that separates them. And I thought about, you know, you, there's a bunch of different personalities in the room. Do you ever, like, come across people that just, like, are a perpetual optimist? Um, I am not. I am, like, a cynic through and through. It's, like, definitely in my DNA. If there was, like, a cynic club, I would be voted president immediately because I can play that game all day. Um, that's me. But my mom is completely different. And it's not just that she's, like, faith-filled. She's an optimist through and through. And, and my dad calls her the Cheshire cat because she can't stop smiling. 
Um, you can go to my mom and you can be in the worst situation ever and like you're laying prostrate on the floor crying your eyes out and, she, and you're like, nothing's ever going to change. I'm in the most hopeless situation. And she's like, uh-uh, it's already all better and here's why. And she's got a laundry list of 20 things that make it completely different and you literally just get back up and you're like, oh, cool. It, being around her family is absolutely amazing because uh, that, our, our whole family like on her side is just... They've gone through incredible journeys of pain in life, and there's broken marriages, and her dad died at 16, and her mom wasn't around because she was working all the time, and people got into drugs and all type of stuff. Everybody there is like, you walk in the room, and everybody's like, you're the greatest person in the world. You could be on your third divorce, and you're like absolutely amazing and incredible, and you're such a good, loyal man and faithful, and it's like, great, I receive that, I receive that. But a lot of that is optimism, and personality traits, it's not necessarily like a biblically informed optimism or faith. Um, and what I can say to this is I don't know if personality has a, huge has a huge effect on that because I think when you look at optimists, optimists are always moving towards energy. And they're always climbing something else. It's almost like an ambition to optimism. The one thing the optimist doesn't like is the pessimist. And if anybody's a pessimist, Naomi is, right? And so it seems very weird that someone who was who had in their personality to be optimistic would tie themselves to a grumpy old widow who says, I'm cursed, don't follow me around, you'll never get anywhere in life. That's not what optimists gravitate towards. So I don't think their circumstances separate them. I don't think their personality separates them. What I do think separates them is I think that their view of God, um, their view of who God is separated them, which is very odd because Naomi is actually a Jew from Israel and Ruth is a Moabite from a foreign land but they seem to have opposite views of who God actually is. Um, I don't know if you guys speak Hebrew very much. I don't. But um, every now and then I pop into a commentary and they tell me what the Hebrew is. Um, so there's an interesting thing that uh, Naomi says. When she and Ruth actually return to Bethlehem a little bit later in the chapter, people, um, people say, is this Naomi who left all those years ago? She's changed a lot and she's not back with her family. And... Um, and Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. I want you to call me Mara. And Mara is Hebrew for bitter. And she says, um, she says uh, the Lord has, call me Mara because the Lord has dealt harshly with me. And um, in the Hebrew there, the word that she uses for Lord is um, El Shaddai, which uh, is kind of like the power essence of God. It's not very personal. It's more of like, probably like the way we would, we would picture it today is almost like the yin-yang forces of the world. It's like fate, right? It's like God is real, but he enacts what he enacts, and it's not like he's very personally involved, and I've been, on, I've been the recipient of a lot of cursing, not blessing, and, I'm, and it's helpless, and there's nothing I can do about it. She invokes this name, El Shaddai. Ruth, when she makes her promise to Naomi to be with her, uses the name Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. That's the difference of the God in the, in the Bible versus any of the gods that existed, including the God of the Moabites. Um, the covenant God is the God who actually says, I'm personal. By the way, that's still the very different thing about Christianity in the world versus every other religion. The idea of a personal God is a foreign concept anywhere that you go. Um, and Ruth invokes the Yahweh God when she makes her promise. When she says, your God will be my God, she uses the term Yahweh. It's the covenant God. And I wonder why that would be, and I might be reading between the lines a little bit, but Ruth was from Moab, and she saw the other side of what things looked like. She was born in a culture where there was a God who wasn't personal. 
um, and in fact was almost like malicious. And you really had to just make sure to keep him satisfied. And so in some ancient historians have discovered traces in the land of Moab of like infanticide and religious prostitution and those types of things. That's the, re that's the religion and the context that Ruth was born into. So she marries into this Israel, Israelite family and discovers something totally new, a personal God who loves you, has a plan for you, and is on a faith journey with you. That must have been a whole new dimension of life. And so when Ruth discovers this, I think that's the way that she sees God. Naomi sees God as someone who has dealt harshly with her, the cosmic force in the clouds where she's made some of the wrong choices and she's been punished accordingly. And Ruth sees God as the Yahweh God, the covenant God, the one who will be with you. Um, to put in a sound bite, I've kind of like, you know, I'm not big on one-liners, but this came to me. It said, Naomi believed that God was God, but Ruth believed that God was good. And I think that that is probably more real to us than most people would be willing to admit. I think that everybody in this room, arguably, 90%, really do believe that God is God. We don't have much question about that. But I think that there's a lot of us who don't really believe that God is that good, that he's a father, that he's working on our behalf, towards good ends. When we, run face, when we run up face to face with pain, I'm not sure that that's actually our reality. We talk about faith a lot in church. And I don't know, one of the things that I've been realizing is that faith is just uh, kind of a Christian term for do you believe that God is good? Because if you had faith, you would believe that God was good and you would walk in that. And so the lack of faith is actually just a question mark. I wonder if God really is as good as he says he is. So the typical thing that usually happens in like this, if I was going to be like a you know, cool preacher or whatever, is I throw these two women up and I say, these are the differences. One is faith-filled and optimistic because she knows who God is. The other is downtrodden and despairing because she um, doesn't. And the question for you is, which one are you? <laughs> but I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's so lame because the reality is, I think that um, in my own life experience, I think that we are both. Um, that you don't really get to be one. I think that in, all, uh, that in our life, um, we will sometimes be Naomi, and we always have the invitation to be Ruth. Uh, I want to do an exercise real quick. Um, so you don't have to participate. I hate audience participation, so I'm totally fine if you want to sit this out. When I go to concerts and the person's like, go like this, I'm like, no, no. But humor me, um, and I think this actually could be really cool if we do this. Um, if anyone has ever had to leave home or the people that they love because it was no longer a safe place to be, I'm wondering if you would stand up. I'll read that one more time. If you've ever had to leave home or the people that you love because it was no longer a safe place to be, would you stand up? Don't be shy. If anyone has lost a member of their immediate family, that could be a spouse, child, parent, or sibling, would you please stand up? If anyone has experienced the kind of financial setback, like health care, bills, a layoff, or a family member you have to support, would you please stand up? And then if anyone has ever had their uh, preferred vision of the future fall apart, if you've ever laid awake at night wondering if 
wondering how you were going to start over, and if you could start over, would you please stand up? So I kind of listed off the things that are specific to Naomi and Ruth's situation. All of those things have happened to them. Um, and when you look around in this room, I just think this is a nice picture to remember that uh, pain is not something that just is in the Bible. And also when we come to church, you know, when you think that everybody next to you has a perfect life and you're the one who doesn't have it together, remember that these things have happened to a lot of people. Stay standing for a second. I want to read something that Henry Nowen wrote. He said, sometimes it seems like life is just one long series of losses. When we were born, we lost the safety of the womb. When we went to school, we lost the security of our family. When we got our first job, we lost the freedom of our youth. When we got married, we lost the joy of many options. And when we grow old, we lost our good looks, our old friends, and our fame. We became weak or ill, and we lost our physical independence. And when we die, we lose it all. And these losses are just a part of ordinary life. What is to be said for the loss of safety through violence, innocence through abuse, friends through betrayal, love through abandonment, the loss of children through illness and accidents, country through political upheaval, or the loss of life through earthquakes, floods, plane crashes, bombings, and diseases? Perhaps many of these dark losses are far away from us, but nobody can escape the agonizing losses that are part of our everyday existence, the loss of our dreams. Uh, you can have a seat. Thank you for doing that, by the way. Catherine of Aragorn has a quote where she says, um, none get to God but through trouble. And I found that to be unbelievably true in my own life. I think that our brokenness and our pain are the things that basically can either pull us away from God, uh, lead us further into the land of Moab, if you will, or can point us to God further into the land of Israel and the land of promise. And we have that choice. And the story of Ruth is interesting because when you look at this character, an adventure is about to start. From pain, from like absolute pain, an adventure is about to begin. When we go through the rest of the book, we're going to see a beautiful, fabulous love story unfold. But it's important to remember before we go a second further that it was born out of pain. And there's a person in it who chose recklessly to make a rash vow to follow a God on a promise that he was good and he was who he said he was. And so before we leave here today, I want to encourage you. I don't really want to give you like a three-step plan on how to make better commitments to God or tell you this is how like you can pray to like manufacture this kind of thing out of pain in your life. I really don't know. Pain is one of the hardest things to figure out and our own brokenness is one of the hardest things to figure out. But what I do know is that a little bit of encouragement goes a long way. And so let me encourage you in three things before we leave. I promise to make this short. Um, the first thing I want to encourage, encourage you in is the faithfulness of God. I'm going to use, uh, oh, somebody changed my whiteboard. On f in first service, I had this whiteboard that was literally this thin, and I have to draw um, this, like, timeline, and so I was like, oh, this is like a timeline of like, a two-year-old. It's like, <laughs> so they gave me a longer whiteboard. Taylor, you the man. You the woman. Um, I, I did an interesting exercise a year ago that I think some of you guys might find helpful. You draw a timeline of your life, and in it, you basically say, what are the most significant moments, what are the most significant things that have ever happened to me? And you trace those moments, and you basically, you can construct the story of your life and how you became who you are by the moments that affected you most deeply. Does that make sense? When you do this exercise, here's what I promise. Everything that will shape you, the very first things that you'll think about, your most significant moments, let's call this the bad side and these the good things that happen to you. Everything you think about first will be bad things. <laughs> 
you will say, this is the place where my heart got broken. This is the place where my mom died. This is the place where, and, it will, and the list will go on and on. It'll, it'll be really hard to think of the good things. Here's what I know. God is faithful, and in the life of a believer, if that's who you really are, if you've given yourself to God, and if you've had those moments with him, here's the interesting thing about doing this exercise. Whatever is a bottom point, you will find is very closely followed by another point. And that's the place that God took you after that. And so down here we have the pain, right? And pain is totally unexplainable. I won't even get into it. You can read C.S. Lewis' Problem of Pain if you want to or whatever. I have no answers for why the things that happen to us happen to us. What has been proven time and time again and what the story of Ruth has for us is that whatever this specific moment is for you, maybe you are in the middle of a really bad relationship. Maybe it's headed to divorce. Wherever this dip is, here's what I can promise you. If you, let, if you allow God to meet you in the middle, whatever this is, will be a strength and depth of relationship with your spouse that you never would have experienced otherwise. It's gonna be better than you could ever imagine. Maybe this is brokenness in you. Maybe you have an addiction that you just can't beat. Maybe there's something that like, you're actually struggling with on a daily basis and you're like, this just isn't working and it's all come out and I've now hit rock bottom with it. Great, excellent. Because if you are willing to go to God with that, he'll turn that into one of your most positive strengths. Probably, the way I've seen it work a thousand times, he's gonna use that as the thing that you're most capable of impacting the world in. Let's say you have a relationship in your family that's you know, gone totally a mess and you just don't know how to fix it. God wants to restore that. If you give it to God, he has a chance and an opportunity to restore that. And who knows, maybe that not only restores that relationship with you individually, but maybe the ripple effects of that affect your whole family. If you trace the story of your life as a believer, you will see this up and down motion of life from pain to God, from pain to God, from pain to God, brokenness to God. And I just want to remind you that God is faithful. And if you actually look at your life for a second, you'll be able to see where he's been faithful. And it helps us imagine what faithfulness in the future would actually look like. Second thing I want to encourage you in is God's covenant. This is just truth, right? If you had to paint like a really broad brushstroke of what the Bible is, here's what I would say. Um, I, do, I actually do this when I hand someone a Bible because I feel like the Bible is like so weird today. People don't like see it for what it actually is. I hand someone, someone a Bible. I don't know if you know this, but Testament. You know how it says Old Testament and New Testament in your Bible? Testament is a horrible English translation the original Greek, if they were going to translate it again into English today, they would call it covenant. And it makes perfect sense. The Old Testament is the old covenant that God made with people. And the New Testament is the new covenant that God made with people. When I hand somebody a Bible for the first time, I tell them that. Because this entire book is about a covenant that God made with people. He started out wanting to be with us and loving us. And you'll watch this undulation happen of us wandering and coming back until the very end where he actually restores that. And, it's, and like literally, the, the last verse of your Bible is now the tabernacle of God. Tabernacle means with us. Now the house of God is with men again. From the very beginning to the very end, this is all a story about God's faithfulness in a covenant. And so I promise you, what God wants is to be with you. If you're in one of those situations, if you're in these areas of brokenness, my reminder to you is that God wants to and desires to be with you. He's not the cosmic Al Shaddai who's just moving the chess pieces around. 
He has every intention of being with you in the brokenness and the pain. And then the last thing I want to remind you of is that um, of all the ways that God could represent himself in the Bible, the way that he represents himself most is um, Father. And I don't think that that's something that we should miss. Um, Not everybody had a great father, uh, but I think a lot of us are aware of the ideal of what a father should be. It comes out enough in stories, and um, even people who had great fathers even have a more idealistic version of a father. When we pray, we tend to say, you know, our father who art in heaven. That's like the language that we use when we speak to God. And he's chosen to present himself as a father because that's one of the most loving and strong relationships that we have on this earth. And it's the relationship that isn't works-driven. Anybody who's a dad will tell you that they love their son unconditionally and that they would do anything for them. And, um, And it's important to remind ourselves that that's actually what God thinks about us. God's not the cosmic guy in the sky who's like trying to throw a lightning bolt at you for doing the wrong thing. He's actually a father. And I just wonder, like, does that make sense to us? Like, does that make sense to you that God is a father and that he loves you in that way? Um, I told you that I would only tell you one Bob Gagliano story, but I'll tell you two today. (laughs) Um, I was a couple couple months ago... um, I was in kind of like a rough spot. Uh, I was definitely in one of these. <laughs> I had hit like a point. And um, it was one of those situations where I kind of just like fundamentally was doubting that God was good. I had come to a point where like there was something in me that I just like thought that there's not really like a lot of control that I have over the situation. And I'm doing all I can and it's not really working. So I don't really know how to move. Um, or do anything. I think this is kind of hopeless. And, um, and that's where I was. And so there was about a month of that where I was just like, I wasn't really hearing from God. I wasn't, you know, I was just distancing and distancing and distancing. And so it was just very dry in my life. And I wasn't really even like caring too much. I was just checked out. And um, it was, um, I, uh, so I commute from the Upper West Side in New York down to Tribeca, and so it's like a five-mile bike ride, and I ride um, the West River Drive, which is like right on the right on the edge of the Hudson River. So I'm biking to work, and I'm just listening to music and stuff like that. And of all things to think about, I start to remember this story that my dad told um, when I was like, you know, I kind of overheard him telling a story to a bunch of guys um, when I was like listening to them in the living room, and this was like a couple years ago. And he was talking about how he lost me at the mall. And I imagine that losing a child at the mall is probably a very horrific experience, you know? Um, and he, uh, and, but the thing is, he lost me for two hours. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I was lost for two hours? It's like negligent. <laughs> um, but, uh, but he's describing it to these guys, and he's like, yeah, he's like, so I, you know, they were calling his name out on the intercom, and I was running around with these policemen, and basically, like, the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up, and he was like, I couldn't believe, I just had this thought racing through my head, did I really lose my son? Did I really lose my son? Did I really lose my son? And he said, the way he said it was, my heart was beating out of my chest like it never has before, and it never has since. And I'm biking, and like literally, almost audibly, I just hear the voice of God say, 
Michael, that's how I feel about you. And I don't know what makes it real for you, but I think that like, if we are open to those moments, God wants, us to, God wants to invite us into the father-type relationship that he has. I don't think we need to live our lives like Naomi, um, thinking that you know, because of the things that we've done in life, because of the stuff that's happened to us, sometimes of our own choices and our own brokenness, that we're just going to be stuck here, and those are the repercussions of what we do. I think that the optimism, what we can move towards and seeing embodied in the life of Ruth, when you see that kind of rash vow that you can take, when you move in the direction of faith and hope, it's because you know that God is a father, that he loves you, that he has plans for you, and that they're good. Um... It's interesting, the very end of this uh, chapter, if you turn to verse 22, they come back to Bethlehem, and it says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And, you know, barley harvest doesn't really excite us very much these days, but back then, <laughs> when there was a land that had famine, the fact that there was a barley harvest, you can see a little tinge of anticipation that there's some type of hope. And I'll give away the punchline already. Ruth meets Boaz, they get married, they have a son, Naomi's restored, all of this amazing stuff happens. And the reality is, the adventure began when someone had faith to commit themselves to God the way that God had committed to them. So, those are my things. I want to encourage you guys. I want to encourage you guys that God is good, that he's faithful, and that his life has, and your life probably already proves that he's faithful. And then above all, he's a father. He's a father that loves you, and he wants amazing things to happen in your life. And as we go through the rest of the story of Ruth, we're going to find out just how true that actually is. Uh, I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and uh, we're going to pray.